That'd be something. Travel all the way halfway around the world and you get to your mama's house and she sends out a servant to you. Amen? I mean, I mean that'd be something else. But that's what happens. And he's all mad and flustered just like an, any normal prideful uh, captain of an army would be. Just like, uh, just like any MacArthur would be, you know. Uh, just as proud and arrogant as could be. And finally, one of his servants convinces him and says, listen, if he would have told you to go uh, dip yourself seven times up in some river up in, a, in Syria, well, you would have done it. He said, let's just try it out here in Jordan. So he does. He humbles himself and obeys God. And what does God do? God heals the man. That's his Bethel. That was his Bethel. That's where he came to the place where he knew that God was God. Nebuchadnezzar had a couple of times he was invited to Bethel, but he didn't ever really come to a Bethel until you find in uh, Daniel chapter number 4, whenever he was turned into a wild beast and uh, had to roam the earth eating grass and, uh, and grain until finally he came to his senses and God had humbled him. That was his Bethel. But every person needs a Bethel in order to have a right relationship with God. In order to have a right relationship with God. Where we're at here in Genesis chapter number 28, the Lord is the God of Abraham. And later on, we're going to find that very famous statement, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. But that statement could not be said in Genesis chapter number 27. It could only be said, the God of Abraham and Isaac. But in Genesis chapter number 28, God does something amazing, miraculous in the life of Jacob. Just like he does in any of us that are saved. Hey, aren't you glad that salvation's a miracle? I think it's the greatest miracle on earth. I don't know about you. I think it's greater than healing a blind man. I think it's greater than healing leprosy. I think it's greater than healing a cripple. Because those things are just temporal. But whenever God saves a soul, that's eternal. He takes a poor, wretched sinner like myself and he changes them and he, and he manifests himself in them and he puts his Holy Spirit of God in them and he saves them forever. But Jacob had some roads to travel before he got to Bethel, before he surrendered his life to the Lord. Let me ask you this, are you tired of traveling? Are you tired of ending up on dead-end roads and not finding your place where you need to be at in life just to turn around again and try, try, try again? Have you done your best to be a good person? I don't know who I'm talking to today. I believe that all of you, many of you, I don't know about all of you, but I believe many of you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But are you tired? Maybe today you're not. Maybe you're just... Want to do better. I would say for many of us that we are uh, saved. We are believers in the Lord. We are believers in God and Jesus Christ. And we've had our Bethel. You've met God. You're a believer. But maybe you haven't grown like you should. Maybe you've gotten away from the Bethel that God saved you at. Maybe it's time that you turn around and take some steps back to the place. Back to the road signs that God would have you to be at. There in Bethel. Every person needs a Bethel. Genesis 28 is Jacob's Bethel. It's the place where he meets God. I pray all of us have met God. I pray all of us have been saved. And if you haven't, you can today. And if you have, and if you strayed away, God's put a path back down for you to get back to Bethel. Father, we're thankful for the word of God. We pray that you please will help us to see the Bethel in our lives and see some road signs that God point us to Bethel. 
the house of God. And Father, I pray that, Lord, our bodies would be your Bethel. Our lives would be your Bethel. It would be the place where, Lord, you could rule and reign and serve and we could and work in, through us. You just help us to be the believers that, God, you would want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. The first road sign to Bethel is this. Now, don't get too excited here, what I'm going to say. The first road sign is this, do your best. Do your best. What do you mean? Well, that might seem like an odd point, but I think it's a very good sign. Work hard. Try hard. Sweat it out. I think there is some honor in some persons that do this. There's something to be said for somebody that is really trying to sweat it out. And it seems to me that oftentimes the people that are trying to work hard and trying to do their best and trying to, if you will, get to Bethel, oftentimes the ones that God will speak to them and help them and let them see that there is a real, true house of God. Because understand this, that not everybody's trying to get to God, okay? Not everybody is out there is, has, wants to do any, something to do with God. You have some people that simply do not want to come to God because they care nothing about God at all. They don't care about their spirituality. They don't care about their eternal future. They don't care about their, their, about their home. I was just talking to, uh, John and I were talking to a girl yesterday, and I, we asked her, I said, what about your eternity? Do you care where you go in eternity? And she said, yes, I do. And then we said, I asked her, I said, how sure of you that you'll go to heaven for your eternity? She said, about 50%. I tell you, that's not caring very much. That's just, ah, maybe I will, maybe I won't. 50-50. Thankfully, we were able to witness to her more, and she listened and took a track, and she even took a Bible and said that maybe she'd read it. Pray for that girl. You see, some people don't care at all. Some people are what the Bible would call them Esau's. They're not spiritual people at all. They're just flesh. All they care about is physical things. All they care about is their birthright. All they care about is this bowl of beans in front of me. Like Esau said, he said, what is this birthright to me? He said, why I sit here about to die. What does it mean to me? I don't need this. I don't care about this. I don't care about these spiritual things. I don't care about the lineage of Abraham. I don't care about being in line with 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 the Messiah. I don't care about any of these things. I'm about to die. What do these things matter? None of, this, none of this matters. And that's the way a lot of people think. All they care about is how much money can I get. All they care about is what am I going to eat today? What am I going to drink today? Aren't people consumed with drink? You know, eating and drinking, we're consumed with that. Have you seen some of the menus that you've gone to at restaurants, right? I mean, sometimes I can't even decide what I want to eat, can you? Because there's so much on the menu because people are all concerned about what they're going to eat. And then if you drink, I mean, just look at the bar. I mean, good night, nurse. I was in a place the other day and just looked at the bar. I mean, just, just, just thousands of, of options to choose from. People are just, they're so concerned about what to eat and what to drink. That's, their life is consumed with this. They love this. And they love to, they're consumed with their, their clothes too, aren't they? Oh, man, people love their clothing. I mean, we've got more clothing stores than I can. I can't even keep up with them. Keep up with them all. My wife said something about, well, this particular brand. I said, I didn't even know that was a brand. 
What is that? That sounds like a plumbing company or an electrical company or something like that. It doesn't sound like no clothing brand. I mean, what is this? I, I mean, we got all kinds of things that uh, suit our fancies out there, but there is some people, that's all they live for. They live for boats and trains and planes and cars, and they live, that's, uh, that's what their life is all about. Or their, or their, their life is all about how to extend my life, right? Uh, they're worried about their health, and oh man, don't we live in a society today that's all concerned about health? There's nothing wrong with being healthy, all right? Some of us could afford to be a little bit more healthy, amen? Amen, okay. I'm, I'll raise my hand. I could afford to be a little bit more healthy, all right? I don't need to be, be eating too many Oreo cookies. I need to put them down, all right? Maybe I need to switch from double stuff to single, you know? So, and uh, that would be my, my, my resolution next year. And... Uh, but I tell you, people are consumed with health. I mean, that's all they want to do. They, all, they, all, they have, all they have time to do is to work out and to run or to cycle or whatever it might be. But there are people like this that they'll just milk life for all it's worth. But here's the conclusion of all of that. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Amen. What will you profit? Nothing. No man or woman ever got into heaven that did not repent of such foolish thinking. That did not at least start trying their best. I believe a struggle is good. Struggle helps you to get over yourself and realize you can't do it alone. Struggle places you in a position that it comes down to this, that it's you and God. I worry about a person that has no struggle. I worry about a person when I'm talking to them about the Lord and they casually accept Jesus Christ as Savior. They just kind of casually put him on. They just kind of casually talk about him. They just kind of casually mention him. They just kind of casually will uh, bow their head and pray about him. They, they almost pray smugly or flippantly or uh, without any uh, thought or manner in the thing. They just kind of go about this thing. And I worry about something like that. I don't want to uh, lead people astray into some kind of false belief. But there should be a struggle. I mean, look at their scriptures. Look at the Philippian jailer. He was in a real struggle. He was in a bad way. I mean, his life was in jeopardy. He was about to die, he thought. And what did he say? He jumped in there. He sprang in and said, I need to be saved. Look at Abraham. That was a struggle, was it not? Coming from his own land down to another land to believe God. Look at Isaac digging his wells. And look at uh, Rahab, uh, how uh, the struggle that she had there to forsake her own people and follow God. And look at Hannah, how she had to uh, struggle in her situation. And Ruth and others, and many others, and Peter and Gideon. And, and all of these, there was, a, there was a struggle for all of these. It seems as if salvation didn't come easy, if you will. They were trying their best. They were working hard. They were worried. They were jeopardy. I even sometimes, I've, I've even seen this in leading children to Christ. I've seen a struggle sometimes. You see it in their eyes. You see it in their mouth. You see it in their, what they say. You, you talk to them. I just remember talking to a boy, this, this uh, vacation Bible school. There was a real struggle with him. He would not give over to God. He would not give in to this simple truth that Jesus is the only way. He kept telling me, I must do something. A 10-year-old. A 10-year-old. A struggle. Now, I don't know how it was whenever you got saved, but I know whenever I got saved, it was a struggle. I had a lot of pride to swallow. I was in Bible college. I was, uh, I was a prayer leader. I was, a, uh, I, was, uh, I was the prayer leader in my room. Uh, and that might not seem like a big deal to you, but uh, when you're dealing with four proud guys, that was a, that was a big deal. Uh, I, was, I, was, uh, I was a preacher boy. 
I had, a, I had a lot of things that were going for me, if you might say in a spiritual sense, but I was lost. Now, that's a very unusual case. That's not the person, that's not probably, I'd say 90% of the people that were there were probably saved, but uh, I'd say some people, the people that are there with their preacher boys were not saved. I was one of them. That was a very difficult thing for me. It was a struggle. I'd say for many of us that came to Christ, especially for us that are first-generation Christians, that it was a struggle. It was something that you had to deal with, something that you had to put up with, something that you had to think through, something that you had to go through. Now, not every one of us deal with that in that same manner, but what I'm saying is this, is that oftentimes it is a struggle. And then go back to our man Jacob right here. I mean, what was his life before this particular case here in Genesis 28? Let's just review it. Think about it. He was running away from what? His murderous brother. He was running away from his sin that he had committed against his father, lying and deceiving him. He was running from his homeland. He was running away from his life, if you will. Let me just step over here for a second. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but I feel like this was impressed upon me just now by the Spirit of God. You cannot run away from your problems. Some of you knew what I was going to say before I even said it. You cannot run away from your problems. Jacob thought he could run away from his problems. He meets God, I believe, in Genesis 28. I believe he has a life-changing experience, no doubt about it. But even when you have a life-changing experience with God Almighty and getting saved, guess what? Problems still don't go away. You cannot run away from your problems. The moment you leave your problems here, guess what you'll find? You'll find problems there. We must, it, it, is, it is imperative that we as believers and Christians in, in, in Christ must learn to deal with our problems in a spiritual manner while we're here. And if God moves us somewhere else, let God move us. Let God do that. But don't move because of a problem. Because guess what? All you'll do is run back into another problem. Be careful with that. But take our man here, Jacob. I mean, he's messed up. He is really messed up. Nothing has worked out for him. Nothing. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe nothing in life has just really worked out for you. You've tried. You've worked. You've done your best. But you still feel like it's not enough. Friend, can I tell you something? You're in a very good place for God to work with you. You're in a very good place. Because God is wanting to help struggling people. God wants to help people that are struggling. He, doesn't, he can't help somebody that does, that's not in a struggle. He can't help somebody that thinks they've got it all taken care of. He can't help somebody that thinks that, you know what, I've got it in control. I am in charge. He can't help somebody like that. He can't. He cannot help a proud man. He cannot help a proud woman. But he can help somebody that says, I'm struggling. I need help. I need help. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I can't do this any longer. I can't handle this any longer. I've tried my best and it doesn't seem like things are working out. God, I... think about Cornelius. Oh, that's great man of God. He, they thought he was. He was a devout man of God. He had done many wonderful uh, and things for the Jews. But guess what? He was lost as a goose in a snowstorm. He was. He wasn't saved. The Bible says he was devout. The Bible says that he feared God, but he wasn't saved. 
It wasn't until God sent Peter up to his house to, say, to, to, to preach to him the gospel of Jesus Christ that then he accepted Christ and was saved. God was not in full control over his house. And that is what a Bethel is, is when God is in control of the house. Is God in control of your house? I already told you what your house is. It's your body. It's yourself. It's you. Is God in control? Do your best. Secondly, see God's best for you. That's important. So imperative. It is, in the, it is at this point that God begins to work in your life and do a marvelous thing that is whenever you begin to see God's best for you, you begin to see that your best is not enough. Amen? All our righteousness are as what? Filthy rags, the Bible says. But we need to see that our best is never enough, but God's best is. You see, God's best is his son. Here is what we all need. We need to see God's best. You say, I can't see God's best. I've never had a physical encounter with God. I've never had a dream like we just read about here. I've never seen the angels ascending and descending upon a, a, a ladder. Listen to me. I'm not talking to you about a physical interaction with God. I'm not talking about that. You realize that thousands of people had a physical interaction with God whenever Jesus was upon the face of the earth, but yet they never believed in God? Do you realize that somebody said, well, if Jesus came down, I'd believe upon him. No, you wouldn't. If you won't believe it here in the Word, you won't believe it if he came down. So you don't have any Bible on that. Oh, yes, I do. Luke chapter number 14. Luke chapter number 16, I should say. He says what? He says, there he is, the rich man, in Lazarus. he's in hell, and he says, Lord, send Lazarus. And he says, he says if they would send one that was, and Abraham says, no, 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 no. He says, if we were to send one that was raised up from the dead back, he said, they will not believe him. He said, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, he says, they will not believe one that was raised up from the dead. Listen to me, my friend. If you won't believe this, then you won't believe him coming down to you literally. People, are, people are, are consumed with this. They, they want some sign. They want some vision. They want something. Uh, or they want somebody else's vision. Or they want somebody else's sign. Or they, they say, well, if I just had this or I've had this, then that, then that would convince me that this Bible is true. Listen to me, my friend. The Bible says that a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. We have the word. And the word is enough. Do you believe it? Jacob did. In this, in this case, here he is, he's lying down, and he dreams this amazing dream, this miraculous dream. And let's just go through it real quickly. It is here that Jacob begins to see that his life is not what it is cracked up to be. And though he's done his best, it is not enough, and God is here to reveal to him something in a very particular manner. And we have it written for us, recorded for us in the Word of God. And he dreamed a dream, and a ladder was set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending upon him. Number one, he was showed a ladder. You say, what's the big deal about a ladder? Well, I'll tell you what the big deal is. The important thing is this, this is no ordinary ladder. Amen? I mean, it wasn't some uh, six-foot ladder uh, made by Werner or anything like that. I mean, this thing was going all the way to heaven. I mean, up and down on it, too, were angels going back and forth, back and forth, ascending and descending, back and forth on this ladder. Uh, on this ladder. And at the top of the ladder was God, and at the bottom of the ladder was Jacob, or you might represent him as man. And it is showing to us and it's showing to Jacob that God is having communication with mankind on this ladder. God is, what is an, what is an angel? You know another word for an angel is this? Messenger. Messenger. 
God is sending his message back and forth to heaven on this ladder. God is sending the message back and forth, back and forth, back and forth on this ladder. And what is this ladder? This ladder is none other than a representation of Jesus Christ our Lord. You say, how do you know that? Well, I've got the word of God on it. John 1, 5, 1, 1, 51. The Bible says this, And Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the heaven open, and angels of God ascending and descending upon what? The Son of Man. Upon himself. He is the ladder to heaven, my friend. Jesus Christ is the ladder. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. He says, I'm the ladder. Jesus says, I'm the one that the message is carried on. I'm the one that stands between God and man. I'm the one that the message is brought forth to uh, by, by him. Christ is the ladder, for there is no, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the ladder, if you will, the man. Christ Jesus the Lord. God gave his best for you that you might be saved. But it doesn't end there. You know what? Whenever you get saved, Jesus is just the beginning. Amen? That's just the beginning. You see, he, has a, he gives him a ladder, but he also gives him the Lord. He shows him the Lord. In verse number 13, he says he sees the Lord, God, sitting above on top of this ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above it. And said, I am the God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. You see, he doesn't say, I'm the God of Jacob yet. Do you see that? This is not Jacob's God yet. He has not personally believed upon him. He has heard about him. He has, heard, he has talked about him. He has, maybe that's you. Maybe your parents, grandparents. Maybe they're believers in God, in Jesus Christ. Listen to me, my friend. God has no grandchildren. He is the God. Of Abraham, he is the God of Isaac, and he is the God of Jacob. He is not the God of Isaac because he's the God of Abraham. He's not the God of Jacob because he's the God of Isaac. He is the God of those three men because they took him personally as their God, and they said, he is the Lord God. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He shows him the Lord, and there is no access to God except it's through Jesus Christ by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by faith of him, Ephesians 3.12. He was showed the land. Look at verse number 13. And the Lord stood above it, and he said, This is the land whereon thou layest, and to, I, to thee will I give it to thee and to thy seed. He shows Jacob the land that one day he will possess and one day his family will possess. And whenever you see the Jesus as your Savior, you know what you truly see? When you see Christ as Savior, you see not only yourself and your sin, not only do you see that there is one way to heaven, there is one way to God, but you know what else you see whenever you get saved? You see a land. And I don't mean this land, I mean another land. You see an eternal land. You see an eternal glory. You see an eternal home. You see Jesus Christ the Lord and you in heaven one day. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he hath prepared for them a city. He shows him a lineage. He says to him, he says, you know what? Jacob, here's a ladder. Here's the Lord. Here, here's the land. He says, but I've got a lineage for you. He tells him that in verse, number in verse number 14. Thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He shows him that he'll have a family that cannot be numbered. 
a family that will be a blessing to the whole entire world. Listen to me, how true that is of whenever we get saved. I was out the other day and talking to some, talking to some folks about the Lord and I met this man and he said he was saved and I said, you know what? I said, you're my brother. You're my brother. My brother in the Lord. My sister in the Lord. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Whenever you get saved, I mean, you get a lineage, my friend. I knew a man one time that all his family had forsaken him because he had believed upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he would cry sometimes and say, you know what? But I have a family here. Mothers, and, and I, have, I have mothers, and I have fathers, and I have brothers, and I have sisters that I've never had before. And just like Jesus said in Mark 10.30, but he shall receive an hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the world to come, eternal life. That's what happens when you get saved. But he also shows him that he would not be left alone. He tells them that in verse number 15. And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places where thou goest and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee. I will not leave thee. And look at the promises. He says, I'll never leave thee. I will never forsake thee. I will, make, I will never take myself from thee. Let me, ask you, let me ask you a very simple question. Logical question. If God gives himself to you, can he take himself away from you? <laughs> if he did, then he'd be taking himself away from himself. He cannot do that. God cannot take himself away from himself. He says, I will never leave you. You say, how could he be taking himself away from himself? Because if he took himself away from you, then guess what also he would be? He would be a liar. He would be a liar. And if God is a liar, then God is not God. I know those are strong words. I know those go contrary to some thoughts right there. But be realizing this, that God told, he tells him, I will never leave thee. And the same promise is true effectively to all believers in Christ Jesus our Lord. For he tells us in John 10, he says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, let us think just a moment and review what we just talked about right here. I gave you all of those points, not just to kind of give you a, a, a little chippy little outline here, but what I wanted to show and express to you is this. What person, what person that came after God that tried to get salvation on their own ever thought that all of those things were what they were going to get in salvation? A lineage, a land, a Lord, a ladder, a God that never leaves them or forsake them. They just were hoping to kind of maybe get a little scratch of the surface from God. But I'll tell you, when God saves you, when God delivers you, he gives you much more than you ever even imagined, my friend. And he saves you to the uttermost, the Bible says. He takes those that are in the guttermost to the uttermost, as Vance Havner used to say. I mean, that's what God does. That's, that's God's plan. He saves you for eternity in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. God has showed us his best. He has given us his best. And there is no comparison between my best and God's best. Have you had your Bethel? Have you been to Bethel? Have you been struggling? Has there been a place in your life where you realize, you know what, I cannot do this on my own. I need somebody else to help me. And it is God. It is the Lord. 
And God shows up and reveals himself and says to you, maybe in a sermon, maybe in a message, maybe through a friend, maybe in a track, maybe some other way, and he reveals to you, you know what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And you believe. That's exactly what Jacob did. He believed upon the Lord. He believed God and took him at his word. Now look what happens. It says here, that not only, it says here in our text, and Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. You know, that just perfectly describes to what I said at the beginning. Is that nobody that gets saved wakes up that morning and thinks to themselves, I'm going to get saved. <laughs> nobody, that, nobody does that. I would per se, perchance even say this, that even as Christians sometimes, that whenever God really begins to speak to our hearts and begins to work and formulate a plan in our lives and begins to do something amazing in our hearts, that none of us even probably thought that morning that God was going to do something in our hearts. And we had a bad day. Maybe the, the, the morning didn't work out for us too good. Maybe, and you may have even walked into this service today, and maybe with a bad attitude, maybe with a bad heart, maybe with a, maybe with a callous spirit, maybe with a, a, a thought in your mind that I just want to get out of here. I just want to do the next thing. And maybe God is trying to speak to your heart today, try to get a hold of you, and try to say, you know what? I've saved you. You're born again. You've been, you're a believer in him. Now come back to me. Come back to me. I love you. And he does. Jacob's response is that I didn't even know this was the place of God. I didn't know I was going to meet God today. Think about Paul on the road to Damascus, going up there to persecute the Jews. Did he think that day? Did he think to himself, you know what, I'm going to meet Jesus on that road today. He didn't think that. He didn't think that at all. But that's the way God often does it. He was not looking for God, but God always comes looking for us. Amen? He is a good shepherd. He reveres God. He says, in verse number 17, he says, and he was afraid. And he said, this is a dreadful place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. He was afraid. Anybody that does not have a healthy dose of fear and reverence and respect and dread to meet a holy God does not truly know the God of the Bible. If God were to appear to us today, there would be a complete fear and dread. The Bible lets us know that when angels appeared before men, there was dread. There was fear. There was trembling. He reveres God. He recognizes this place as a holy place. He says, this is a house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This is the very gate. When God reveals to us himself, whether it's in his word, or as I said, at church or home or wherever it might be, and that God has helped us, may we always realize that this is a wonderful experience. This is a noted thing that we all must recognize and believe upon it. But how many have God tried to work in their hearts? How many has God tried to work in their hearts and yet they don't want anything to do with it? They run away from him. They push God down. They push him down. They push him down. I am one to believe that God created the emotions 
and the faculties within us. But how many even sometimes push down the natural God-given faculties of emotion whenever God is beginning to work in their heart? They push back the tears. They try to wipe away the the sad or gloomy face. They try to put on a smile. They try to do anything to, to put away God. They don't want God to touch them right now. God, don't touch me. I don't want to be touched. You ever said that? This, I don't want to be touched. Sometimes the spouse says that. I don't want to be touched. Leave me alone, you know. You've done something, you know. Us guys, that's what girls say to their, you know, to their husbands all the time. You know what I mean? Us guys, we really, royally, we really royally mess it up. How many of you guys, how many of you guys have royally messed up? Amen. The rest of you are lying. Amen. So, uh, and your wife says, I just don't touch me. says how many of though we did that God's trying to work in our hearts and it's not God that's messed up but we've messed up we say don't touch me I, I don't want to cry I don't want to kneel I don't want to bow I want to keep living in the way that I'm living and doing what I'm doing stop messing with me friend God is a perfect gentleman and he'll say Okay. But he's also very persistent. He's also very persistent. And you husbands, you need to be persistent on your wife. When she says, don't touch you, don't keep touching her, okay? I'm not saying that. But you be persistent. You don't give up. You keep showing her love and attention and affection. Don't you get all proud and arrogant and big-headed. That was free. I didn't charge you anything on that one. He recognizes it as a holy place. He reveres God. He rears up a monument. He sets these stones and he pours oil on top of them. And he rears this up and he dedicates it to God. And he says, this is the house of God. Can I tell you this? I don't know when and where you got saved. But, but some of you know where you got saved. Some of you know when you got saved. Some of you know the circumstances surrounding when you got saved. I know that all of us know that, all right? I know some of you got saved at a very young age or anything like that. But that shouldn't change the fact that you should be able to rear up a monument to God Almighty. And you ought to be able to say, you know what? I want to give my best to God. And what that requires is this, is that recognizing that salvation is a holy thing. It requires that I revere God. And it requires that I rear up a monument and be able to tell others about the salvation that God has happened to me. That God has done with me. And if you can remember and you can rehearse and you can remember the day, the time, and the hour. I know some people that maybe wrote it down in the Bible at 9.59 p.m. on a Sunday night at October the 17th, 2003. I got saved. You know what I mean? And if you do, that's great. Now tell somebody about that. Amen? And let somebody know. You say, well, I don't know the exact time, hour, date, and season. I don't know if it was raining or snowing or sleeting or anything outside. I don't know what was happening that day. But I know this. I'm saved. Then tell somebody that. Amen? Let them know. You don't got to have an exact day, hour. I don't know what day of the week it was whenever I got saved. I know I was 19. I know I was in Bible college. I know this. I was lost. And then I got saved. I was lost, but now I'm found. Amen? Rear up a monument. Can you, if somebody were to come to you today, and this is a challenge, if somebody were to come to you today, maybe your boss, your coworker, maybe a friend of yours, maybe a family member, and say, you know what, I know you're a Christian. I want to be a Christian too. How do I become a Christian? 
Could you tell them? Could you tell them? I ask somebody that sometimes. They say, well, just kind of do what you think's best. <laughs> what kind of answer is that? Do what you think's best. That's what they're doing already. Amen? No, find the word, find it in the word of God. Say, I say, I don't know what to say. Then grab one of those little gospel tracts. Grab a little ticket to heaven back there and give it to them and say, hey, tell them. Say, I don't really know it all either, but I know I'm saved. And I know this right here tells you how to be saved. And then go home and read that little thing and say, I want to know better how to uh, tell people and how to rear up a monument. But he responds correctly. And I believe this is where we really see Jacob's faith really come to fruition here in in verses number 20 and 21. And it says, and Jacob vowed a vow. And he said, and this has always kind of confused me. And it might have confused you when you first read it. But let me read it and then I'll explain it and then we'll be almost done. If God will be with me. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. What he is not saying is this. He's not saying, if God does A, B, and C, and D, then will he be my God and then will I trust him. That's not what he's saying, okay? He's stating this in verse number number 20 as a fact. It is almost as if since God will do these things. He's saying, or maybe in our modern vernacular, well, if God says he's going to do all of these things, then the only choice I have is to believe upon this God and for him to be my Lord and to be my God. Do you understand that? He's making a righteous, godly response. He's saying, I believe upon him. He is my God. He is my Lord. He says his word, and this is what he said, I believe it. I believe it. And then finally, he repays God with a righteous reward. And he sets up this stone, which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that shall shall give me, I shall surely give the tenth unto thee. Finally, Jacob repays God. Now, you can't really ever repay God for the salvation that, you can, that he gives to you. But you know what? We ought to make a little bit of payment. We ought to at least say, you know what, God, what you've done for me, I would love to give back a small portion of what you have given to me. Just a small portion. He dedicates the land. He says, this is God's house. He says, mi casa su casa, right? My house is your house, God. This house, amen, this house, God, let's talk in the New Testament, this house not mine anymore, God. I'm saved. This is Bethel. God didn't just save the, save, he saved it all. He said, this is your house, God. I'm dedicating to you. This is you, yours, God. And whatever it is that in my life, it is yours. It is like what Joshua said 500 years later. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. We'll do it, God. And if God has saved you, what have you dedicated to him? Have you dedicated your life to him? Have you dedicated your house to him? Have you dedicated your home to him? Is your home, let me step away from this home and let me speak about your earthly home. Is your earthly home, is that his? Can God go in the refrigerator? Can he turn on the TV? Can he browse your internet history? Is that okay? Can God search through all your closets? Amen? 
And if I, if I see a little sign at your house that says, Mi casa, su casa, all right? And I come in, I flip my shoes off, and I come in, I start making some, making some eggs, you know what I mean? And I start rifling through the drawers and everything in your personal top drawer up there, you know what I mean? Everybody's got their personal stuff in their top drawer, you know what I mean? You say, no, I'm smart to put it in the bottom drawer, you know what I mean? And they go through all your stuff, and they say, what's the keys, where's the keys to the safe and the combination and everything? You say, wait a second. You don't deserve to do all that. You don't belong here. Uh, you said, well, this, you said, you said on the sign out there, you said, your house is my house. I can read Spanish. I know what that means. I can do that. Well, you didn't, oh, you didn't really, really mean that? So when you got saved, did you really mean that? Is it my, is it this really God's house? Well, I didn't really mean that God could, you know, like, tell me how to spend my money, you know, or like God could like, you know, tell me where to go or what friends to have. I didn't, I didn't really, so what is it? Is God your Lord or is he not your Lord? If he's your Lord, he can tell you whatever he wants to. Whatever. See, I don't always like what he tells me what to do. Well, at least you're honest. And God likes honesty. And you should tell him that. But then you should on the backside say, Lord, but I'll do whatever you want me to do. And God, I want to ask you that you'll give me the right heart to do it. Because I love you. And then he says, I'll give you a tenth of all that I have. In those days, they didn't trade in money. Traded in cows and sheep, donkeys. They were a bartering, agrarian type society. We're not like that anymore, necessarily. We deal in money. Does God have your money? I hated to kind of, I was really praying about this thing, and Lord, I really don't want to end on tithing, you know. But I didn't write the Bible, okay? It's just kind of how it's written for me. So that's where it ends at. It says, I'll give you a tenth of all that I have. So tithing's not in the New Testament, preacher. I know I've read it a couple times. But Malachi here says, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. There may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, there shall not be room enough to receive it. Can I also remind you that these three patriarchs were not a part of the original Mosaic law? They were doing this out of their heart. They were giving 10% of what God had increased them with, and whatever increase that was, they gave 10% to God. Now, I know some of you are very faithful with that. But if this has never been a practice of yours to be involved with, to never get involved with tithing, could I encourage you to do so? I'm not looking for your money. I'm just telling you this, if that, do you trust God with your money? 
Do you trust God for 10% of all the increase that you make? You get a bonus at work? Do you get 10%? Honor the Lord with a, with a substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. You know what that means? That means before you pay a bill, before you do anything, give to God. Give to God. So shall all thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. Listen, folks, God could have said, I'll t- I want 90%, and you get to keep 10 <laughs> But I'm thankful the Lord understood economics pretty good. And I think he also understood our faith. I don't know what God wants you to give, but I believe that a tithe is a good place to start. Some of you have been practicing tithing to the Lord for years upon years. And if I were to draw you up here today, first of all, you'd be red-faced and ashamed. You wouldn't want me to. You wouldn't want me to do that. Secondly, if you did, every one of you that have given to God faithfully throughout the years and have tithed to God would testify 100% that God has always been faithful. He's always been faithful. Every increase. I tithe off of stimulus checks. I didn't earn that. That was an increase to me. I sell something. I sell something. Make a little money off of it. I tithe off of it. Not because I want to be special. I just want to honor God with everything I got. Down to the last dime I have. I'm not perfect. We're none of us are perfect. And all of us have places in our lives where we need to return back to Bethel and say, God, you know what? You saved me. You saved me a long time ago. How many have been saved in here 40 years? 30 years? Or, excuse me, 50 years. 60? Miss Blue, saved over 60 years. You know what? God's still being good to her. Still blessing her. All the way to glory. Hope one day I can raise my hand and say, you know what, I've been saved 60 years. God's still good. I can go back to my Bethel and point to that time. I can say, you know what? I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm born again. My life has changed. Oh, I've drifted from Bethel. And I wish I had more time to spend on this subject because Israel drifted a long, 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 long ways from Bethel. Israel set up in Bethel the false idol. And it was not till Josiah the king that came along nearly some four or five hundred years later that Cain had to come and destroy it. Sometimes we get away from Bethel. And we need to get back. Every person needs a Bethel. Do you have one? Father, we're thankful.